Ushers are coming forward now, and if you would like a, an outline, if that benefits you with taking notes, just be sure to let an usher know that you would like a, an outline and a pencil, or if you need one, they'll be happy to give you one. You will need a Bible, of course. Bibles are available uh, to be passed out as well. You'll want to have a copy of God's Word with you this morning. It is our standard. God's Word is our rule. It is our authority. And we are blessed to have them so readily available for us. Who knows how long that will remain to be the case. Uh, there are certainly countries where the Bible is illegal. And it's not that right now here for us in the United States, but uh, let's pray that that remains the case. But you will need it, and we have them readily available for you this morning. So be sure to ask the usher for one if you, if you would like one. Now, there's a lot in our text today. There's a lot to cover, actually. Uh, kind of, it's kind of a break, really, in the topic that we've been considering the past uh, month or so. Only, a, only kind of a break, not a true break, break as you'll see. We've been thinking about the relationship between, a, between men and women, the topic of marriage. And after this passage, the apostle is going to get back into that same topic. This was a serious problem for the saints in Corinth. They had a lot of confusion about the relationship between men and women. And it's good for us that he spilled so much ink on this topic because there's a lot of confusion for us in our culture on this same topic today as well. Uh, We're glad that the apostle spilled this much ink on it, as a matter of fact. But in our text for today, which serves basically like a hinge for the chapter, uh, we're going to cover a few things. We find the topic of contentment being addressed. There are cultural issues addressed, salvation is huge, Christian living, and the law of God. And so we're not going to be able to say everything that we could say about all those topics because that's simply too much than we have for a single Sunday morning sermon. But they're all going to be cached in this context of a principle that is true for the things that we've been covering over the last month, as well as being true for all of life. Uh, The the principle that's going to be put forth in the text today is true for the things that we've been dealing with over the past month, but it's also true for all of life. So again, it's only kind of a break in the topic. He's giving us this theological reasoning for offering the previous instruction, really. So it's an important text, one that we really need to hear. So let's simply begin with reading the passage. I'll do some recap after we read, and of course, before we do the recap and get to the sermon, we'll pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. So the reading of the word of the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. That ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for your preservation of it, for how it is 
a guide to us, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, how it offers correction to us. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would make us sensitive to your word. That I would not be a distraction myself, but that we would truly understand that your word, when it is taught properly, it is as if you are just giving us instruction yourself. So help us, Lord, to all receive what your word has to say. May you be glorified, for you are worthy of honor and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this certainly is an interesting passage. And I wanted to first put it in context. Like I said, it's only kind of a change in topic. It's really elaborating on his main point in the previous sermons that we've been hearing. If you remember from the beginning of this chapter, the beginning of chapter 7, he, he writes this. He says this in verse 1. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So evidently, one of two things is possible. Either, number one, either the Corinthians wrote to Paul and they asked him specific questions. They had specific doctrinal questions, perhaps, about how to live the Christian life. And so they write this letter to the apostle asking for clarification. Or secondly, the Corinthians wrote to Paul in response to things he had said. And now they have some assumptions about them and they're, they're kind of off. They're, there's a disconnect between what they believe and what they think and what the apostle has said. And so they're wanting to find out what's the right way. And so in either case, the apostle is responding to what the Corinthians themselves wrote. We don't have the letter that the Corinthians wrote to the apostle Paul. It would be great if we did. But in this letter to the saints to Corinth, we get to know some, at least, of what they wrote to him because the apostle Paul is a good teacher. He helps us. And so he quotes what they say in his letter to, them, um, to him so that he can clear up the confusion. Uh, we saw that a couple times in chapter 6, if you remember. And the apostle quotes the Corinthian view at the beginning of this chapter too. The expression that the Corinthian church was living under, which is a, a problematic uh, expression, is this in verse 1. It, it says, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You see that there in the text, the ESV, the translators wanted to help us, so they did us a favor by putting quotations around that phrase. They're, they're doing that so that we might understand that this is what the Corinthians were saying to the Apostle Paul. This wasn't what the Apostle Paul was saying to them. This is what they said to him. And it's a, it's a slogan. It's one of those Corinthian slogans. We've been introduced to a number of them, one of their axioms. And it's a, it's a slogan that gives us some insight into what the problem was for the, the church here in Corinth, a problem with their perspective. We have to remember that the Corinthians had this wrong view of life, that they, after experiencing salvation, had this distorted view of what it means to be a Christian. I mentioned it before. They had what Martin Luther has called a theology of glory. They had lost a focus on Christ and Him crucified. And, and in that, you know, things like suffering and trials took a low place in their life. Perhaps even there was no place for suffering and trials in their lives at all. They thought themselves to be spiritually advanced, basically. That they, were, they had already arrived, as it were. They would attained to a level of wisdom and knowledge and maturity that made certain things in life insignificant, actually. And it's not a, it's not a good thing to neglect Christ and Him crucified, church. It landed them in gross sin. Remember from chapter 6, they, they thought it was okay to actually sleep with prostitutes. It's shocking to us that they would justify something like that. But that's not the only way that this theological error displayed itself. 
They thought they had reached such a level of spiritual maturity that what was required of them when they became a Christian was to actually then at that point change their station in life, to change their status in life. So for instance, uh, they were going along in life and then and, and they're married and then they become Christians. They received the spirit and now they're these super spiritualized people. They're theologians of glory. And so now one of the ideals that they held would seem to be sexless marriage. And Paul is like, no, that's not what it means to be spiritual at all. That's not how a Christian behaves. In fact, the opposite ethic is true for the Christian. You as a Christian are blessed in Christ to have a lot of sex in the marriage bed. That is a gift from the Lord to you in marriage. Uh, Paul addresses a number of other conditions related to marriage, but what you realize, what you understand when you read the chapter and then get to this paragraph, which is, again, it's really the central controlling issue of this uh, chapter, is that the Corinthians were under the illusion that because they were so spiritual, because of their new spiritual status, that they had to change their station in life. That certain things in life were no longer for them. They had went beyond them. So our text in this morning the apostle gives this controlling principle of the entire chapter. He's been building up to this principle uh, that is instructive for all of life even. And we know that this is the hinge of the chapter and a principle for all of life because Paul repeats it three times in this one section even. He repeats this, this very principle that he's trying to urge upon the Corinthians to embrace now to correct the errors that they are in three separate times. And so what Paul does is he puts the quote uh, spiritual maturity of the Corinthians in, in radically different terms than what they were practicing. He does a 180 with it. And we need to understand that because what he says is instructional for us, even if we're not committing the relational sins that the Corinthian church was committing. What he says matters for us because the, the instruction behind it is important for more than just the specific issue that the Corinthian church was having. If the Corinthians really want to be spiritual, if they really want to live as people who, who don't look like the world, if they really want to demonstrate to the world that they really are mature and that Christ Jesus has transformed them, and who doesn't want that? Well, then they need to understand the real, clear spiritual maturity is in a totally different category than what they thought. He's flipping the, their whole ideal upon its head. In fact, uh, the Apostle is going to do something in this paragraph which I think we can really appreciate. And that's going to urge them. He's going to urge them, and listen to this. This is important. He's going to require of them, actually, that they remain in the state or condition in which they, that they have been called. Because the important thing in your life, friends, is that you've been called. We'll define that in a moment. But this is the controlling principle that is first delivered. Now, Paul's not going to undermine or dismiss the stations in life, which we've just mentioned here, that we're called to. And if you can, put like a mental asterisk around this idea, okay? Because I'm going to revisit it. There are some qualifications for it. But what Paul is going to do, and this is critical for us to understand, is that Paul is basically going to tell us that being called by God through His Spirit to faith and new life in His Son means that whatever station you are in when it happens, being called to that, in that station actually sanctifies that station. You don't need to change your social status. 
You don't need to change your station to become more holy because being called in it has a sanctifying effect upon it. So think about the previous sermons. If you were called in marriage, if you were called while married, marriage is sanctified by the fact that you were called in in that marriage. Are you unmarried? Celibacy is sanctified by the fact that you were called in that celibacy. Are you married to an unbelieving spouse while called? Well, sanctified. Do you have children in that marriage with an unbelieving spouse? They're sanctified. All by virtue of you being called. You don't need to abandon people. You don't need to abandon stations simply because you've been saved. And he's going to give us some other examples which seem a little strange, which seem a little foreign to us that we'll have to talk about. But it's, it's this very theme that is being captured here. The idea that whatever your status is in life, it's actually irrelevant. What matters, what matters for you is that you've been called. The real relevant thing is that you are a child of God, and since you're now called a child of God, whatever station in life that you have is sanctified by the virtue of that calling. And so this articulates for us one of the big teachings of the Reformation, actually. We're familiar with the Reformation here, that event that happened in the beginning of the 16th century, in which... Uh, True doctrinal standards were captured and, and there was a big split in the church. Now you have the Roman Catholic Church over there who is refusing to identify with what the Word actually teaches. And so one of the, the main principles that came out of the Reformation has to do with this idea of your calling and the station that you have. No matter what our calling, no matter what station we have in life, we are called to live all of our life in the presence of God, to live our lives before the face of God. If you read Table Talk magazine, you're familiar with this expression in the Latin, I think. Uh, it's the expression quorum Deo, in the presence of God. So whether you're a slave, whether you're free, whether you're single, whether you're married, whatever the case is, in fact, you are called to live that life that God has given you and to live it before His presence and also then for His glory. You don't, you don't receive this call from God and then turn around and try to increase your status by changing the station, by changing the place that you were called in. But you recognize even that your status was a gift from God, just as sure as your calling was. And so you glorify God through them both. So what the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 17 is what he calls a rule in all the churches. So listen to what he says here. Verse 17, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is the rule in all of the churches. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. So Paul's little only there in the beginning of that verse that connects us back to the previous section where, again, Paul's predominant theme throughout each of these marriage and non-marriage situations is basically this. Remain as you are. And then he gets to this and he says that actually the Lord has assigned to us, that he has apportioned to each one of us these stations that we are in. So whether in marriage or not, in, or not married, whether married to an unbeliever or married to a believer, the Lord has assigned these things. So what's in view there is as the Lord, by the way, when, when the Apostle Paul uses the expression the Lord, he almost always means the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea by saying assigned is that the Son of God 
is absolutely sovereign over your assignment and your apportionment in life. Jesus, the reason why you are in the place where you are in life has to do with Jesus' sovereign rule in your life. That comes from him. Now, just as sure as the call, which is the second phrase, as God is called, that call is, of course, a saving call by the Spirit in which He enlivens our hearts and draws us irresistibly to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus. But what's interesting, I think, is what the Paul doesn't is what Paul does in this. In the beginning of the verse, is he takes these two lines referring to assignment and to calling, and then the two lines together he indicates this that God himself has sovereignly put you in whatever situation in life that you are in. And it's in that sphere of life that he has sovereignly called you to himself for salvation. You didn't have to do something for God to call you to salvation. He called you in the sphere of life that you were in when he called you. Now, maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal to us because, you know, our lives are comfortable by and large. But we'll see more and more why this ends up being so important in our passage. And so then Paul says this, let each person lead the life. So in whatever assignment you've been called, whatever sphere of life you're in, in which God issues this saving call that has come to you, you are to, to continue to walk in that and to continue to live in the station in which you were called. And the reason that Paul can say this, verse 17, because in one sense, whatever your station in life is, it's, it's actually irrelevant. It doesn't matter. That's not the main thing. The relevant part of life, the really relevant part of life is having been called. So let's, let's just like illustrate this here in our own congregation. We have nurses, we have real estate agents, we have policemen, we have retired people, we have students, we have eye doctors. These are all stations in life. We have construction workers, factory workers. These are all stations. From a, from a worldly perspective, okay, some stations might be better than other stations. But Paul's point is that whatever that station or sphere is that you're in, it's irrelevant if you've been called because the real important thing about the people in this room is not what they do in life, but who they are in Christ. That's the really important thing. The focus is on Christ. That's the thing that binds us together. That's the thing that exceeds all other means of identity in our world. Paul deals with this in other letters as well. He's just approaching it now from a different angle for the church in Corinth. I remember Galatians, for example. If you turn to Galatians 3 in your Bible, it's just a few chapters to the right. You can keep your finger in 1 Corinthians. He's going after this same idea, the same concept here about finding your identity in Christ. Galatians 3, 27 to 28. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And all this emphasis today, it's put on our ethnicity, isn't it? It's, it's put on our gender. But in a sense, what Paul is saying right now to the church in Corinth and to us is that that stuff is irrelevant. What matters is that you were called in Christ. You were called in God. I mean, would you rather be a doctor or a Christian? A doctor is good, right? There's nothing wrong with being a doctor by any means. But it's better to be a Christian. 
Would you rather be a computer programmer or a Christian? Now, now, Paul's not saying you have to make a choice. But what he is saying is that, you know, hey, if you're a nurse, great, fantastic. God called you while you were a nurse. It's great that you get to be a nurse. But really, the important thing is that you are called. So, so that's what Paul's getting at here. And so genuine spirituality, then, is not changing your status because you've been called. But it's learning to remain in the status that you were called as a called person. And again, remember that mental asterisk I wanted you to make. And then Paul says, and this is, he says, this is what I instruct in all the churches. Now, to my knowledge, the only time he says that is here in the letter to the Corinthians, and he says that four different times. Uh, and that indicates something, I think. What that indicates is that Paul is reminding them that this is what all the other churches are taught as well. That this is what all the other churches believe, and this is what the Apostle Paul believes. That he's not telling them something new or different. The implication is that it's the Corinthian church that is believing the wrong thing here. Paul's instruction for other churches isn't, okay, now that you're a Christian, do something radical and amazing. Forgo your old way of life. Now do this amazing thing for the Lord. No, his instruction is the same in every church. It's remain. This is where God has called you. Now honor the Lord in that station. So he's pointing out that they're the ones that are off track. And then he comes to this, which is basically an illustration of what he's talking about. And I have to say that this is, this is one of the, the pains or the agonies of consecutive verse-by-verse expository preaching. It's funny, actually, because 10 sermons ago, exactly at 1 Corinthians part 21, I praised verse-by-verse exposition because it causes us to deal with tough topics and doctoral issues that are important. But here's one that I wouldn't mind skipping, to be honest. Um, in consecutive expository preaching, you never have the option of skipping verses. If I had that as an option, I would use that option right now, but I don't have that option, so let's proceed. So this is verse 18. Here's the illustration. Notice the first half of it. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not to seek to remove the sign, uh, the marks of circumcision. Now, are you envious of my position right now? <laughs> Being able to talk about this, I guess it's not Christmas Day at least. So, uh, what, but what Paul is talking about is, well, if someone at the time of his call all, was already circumcised, well, then he would be speaking of a person who was a Jew, a person that became a believer in the time of the New Covenant, a person that grew up in the Old Covenant era, or at least in the, with an Old Covenant frame of mind. But what's this idea of being uncircumcised, Right? I mean, how can you remove the marks of circumcision? I'm under the impression that that's pretty much not reversible, but that's a done deal. Um, he's, he's not meaning like a theological view of circumcision here. He says the marks of it, right? So he, it's telling us that he's talking about this thing that's done in the flesh. So commentators know that the idea here is a medical and technical term, meaning to pull over, to pull over or to stretch over, and it was a reference to a medical procedure that was used by Jewish people to conceal their circumcision. That was a thing, apparently. So, for instance, in 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 15, it said, in talking about the influence of Antiochus IV upon the Jews during that intertestimonial period, that this was something that was practiced. Now, I know that I'm referencing a book that is not Scripture, a book that is not in the Bible. In fact, a, a book that is in the Rome, Roman Catholic Bible. It's an apocryphal book. And they use it, and, it, and it's been that since the 16th century. They use that book and other apocryphal books to justify false doctrine. I'm not using it in that sense at all. Um, but it is a historical book. 
I'm referencing it here not as if it was scripture at all. I don't. I know it's not scripture. It's not scripture. It, it's not mentioned at all. It's not quoted from at all in the New Testament. It's not scripture. But it does tell us something about the history of the Jewish people. In the Maccabees book specifically, they describe a time of, of tumult between Malachi and Matthew, that intertestimonial period. It tells of a revolt. And talking about the Jews that compromised, 1 Maccabees 1.15 says that they made themselves uncircumcised and forsook the, forsook the covenant, the holy covenant, and joining themselves to the heathen, and they were sold to do mischief. So they, they made themselves uncircumcised, and they forsook the holy commandment. And then you have uh, Josephus' writings. Josephus was a historian, and he gives us an early history of the church. Josephus talking about the hypocrisy of the Jews as well under the influence of Antiochus confirms the things that were written in Maccabees. And it gives us some other details that I don't think I need to quote for us this morning. But it was the same sort of idea that the Apostle Paul is using as an illustration. Some Jews left off all customs that belonged to their own country and imitated the practices of other nations. But it seems to me as if Paul is actually just simply using an example here as a, as a way of teaching that you should remain as you are. I think it ends up being somewhat of what we would call like an axiom, a self-evident example, in other words. I'm not exactly sure that this was a real issue in Corinth. Gordon Fee points this out in his commentary. He says, there may have been Jews in the Hellenistic world who did try to hide their circumcision. And of course, they lived in a different world that we live in today. And they may have tried to hide their circumcision in order to help in terms of their business and so forth, living in a Greek world. But it seems highly doubtful that this was like a big issue in Corinth. There's a, there's a, the reason why commentators think that, and the reason why we should probably think that as well, is because there's a lack of urgency in the way the apostle is talking about it. It's, it's, not, it's not said with the same sort of verbal language that other things that they were actually suffering with that were mentioned in previous passages. And it's hard um, to imagine that there were Jewish Christians that felt they needed to become uncircumcised. In fact, the corollary of this is what seems to make more sense. The second half of verse 18, which reads, "...was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised, let him not seek circumcision." Now this is probably more of a real situation especially if there's any hint of Judaizing influence here in Corinth. Now, there's not very much evidence that that was the case. We don't read about the Judaizers having a strong presence here in the city of Corinth. But you could very well imagine with Paul's teaching regarding circumcision and then the Judaizers' actual heretical teaching, which said that actually it's faith plus your circumcision, which makes you complete in God. Remember, we read about that heresy in Galatians. You could imagine there was, in a sense, maybe those people that were Gentiles, that they thought that maybe circumcision was needed to make them a complete Jewish Christian. There was this confusion about it, perhaps, in their congregation. And so Paul says, stay where you were called. In other words, did the effectual call of God through the Spirit come to you while you were uncircumcised? Don't let that person then become circumcised. Why? Because under the New Covenant, both circumcision and uncircumcision have absolutely no spiritual value. You understand that, right? Under the New Covenant, circumcision and uncircumcision have no spiritual value. Why? Well, because being a national Jew has no redemptive privilege over being a Gentile. Christians are not ch children of the flesh. 
If it did, then circumcision would matter. It would be required. But the fact is, is that Christ through the cross actually brings a redemptive equality to Jew and to Gentile. So that circumcision is part of that old age. It's part of the Mosaic covenant and that no longer has any special value. Why? Because now through the cross, there's been made one new man, Jew and Gentile, one new man. Therefore, circumcision doesn't make any difference at all. Paul uses the same language in Ephesians 2 as well. You can visit that later this afternoon and see for yourself. In fact, uh, the, later Paul is going to say that for by one spirit, we have all been baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, bond or free, right? We have, we have all been made to drink of one spirit. In other words, there is no redemptive advantage to circumcision because there is no longer a redemptive advantage to being under the old covenant. And being Jewish. So here's Paul's principle, and he sets forth in verse 19 circumcision is what? It's nothing. It counts for nothing. Circumcision doesn't count for anything. And uncircumcision is what? It's nothing. It also doesn't count for anything. But, and this is the way the Greek text reads actually circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the commandments of God. That's all it says. It kind of just leaves you hanging, leaving it for you to figure out the point, kind of like, like sending a text message and then putting dot, dot, dot at the end of that text. You're like, like, you figure out what I'm trying to say here. You know what I'm implying. And so what is it that Paul has taught consistently through his letters to the churches? Or this is what Paul has taught consistently to the churches throughout all of his different letters. Galatians chapter 5, again, circumcision, uncircumcision is nothing. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 5.16 that if you receive circumcision, you will be cut off from Christ. If, if you think that it is that circumcision is required for holiness, then you are putting yourself back under the law and you're removing from you Christ's perfect satisfaction uh, for wrath against your sin and righteousness in your place. Galatians 6.15, circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean anything. What matters is the new creation. So Paul is very clear. He's very consistent on this principle. Circumcision and uncircumcision is nothing. There's nothing spiritual about it. There's nothing redemptive about it. There's nothing that makes it holy. It's absolutely, completely tied to the old age. It's absolutely, completely tied to the Mosaic covenant, tied to the flesh. And those things now have passed away or have been fulfilled in Christ. And Gordon Fee, in his commentary, makes this observation, and it's good. He says, in this basically Gentile church that would be readily understood precisely because it was never an issue for them. But it is hard for us to imagine the horror with which a fellow Jew would have responded for not only does circumcision count, it counted for everything. So you can account for a Gentile believer sort of saying, yeah, thankfully circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't matter very much. They count for nothing. But then you can imagine the Jewish believer thinking to themselves, like how in the world can Paul say this? It's the very sign of the covenant, the very sign of the covenant with Abraham. This is the mark we received in our flesh in order to show that we belong to God. And Paul says, not anymore. He says, not anymore. It doesn't avail you. It's absolutely irrelevant now. In fact, it is the cross of Christ and it's the gift of the Spirit that nullify that which the Jews thought amounted to everything. In fact, Paul's point ends up being to embrace circumcision for religious purposes as if it somehow, as if that act somehow does complete you, 
that if doing that somehow does bring you into a covenant relationship with God, to embrace circumcision in that way is a denial of the cross. It's a denial of the Spirit. It's a denial of God's grace. So, this, I guess this really isn't a problem for us, right? I mean, I haven't heard of any churches splitting over circumcision. Although, you know, in the first century, this was a big deal. This was a major issue. So what in the world do you make of this? You know, I've never heard of a Baptist church splitting over this matter. Uh, you hear Baptist churches splitting over things like the color of the carpet. Or, you know, when is the rapture going to happen? Or, or what exactly kind of helicopters are those locusts in the book of Revelation? Those are the types of things that Baptist churches split over. This, this isn't an issue for us, right? Not circumcision. That's not our debate. Well, in the context, this is far more pertinent than we may recognize. Gordon Fee suggests that we take this principle and then kind of just work it back into what we've already looked at. So we take the principles established here by circumcision and we look back at what he said before this in chapter 7. It makes a little bit more sense to us. To say something like this, marriage doesn't matter. Celibacy doesn't matter. What matters is the commandments of God. You see, it's the same thing, right? Whatever the status is that you were called in, that ends up not being the main thing. So if you were called to be a Christian while you're married, then praise the Lord. Be a solid, called husband. If you were called to be Christian while married and your wife, be a solid, called wife, whatever. Were you called while not married? It doesn't make any difference. He's not saying that your marriage is unimportant, okay? Nobody's saying that. But what he is saying is that for the married or for the unmarried, that's not what ultimately matters. What really matters is, well, in fact, is keeping God's commandments. Is, is Paul just being a legalist now? All that matters is keeping the commandments. Uh, you do understand that there's this interesting play on the idea here. So let me see if, we, if you could fill it in. Um, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But the commandments of God, dot, dot, dot. Remember, that's how it reads in the, in the Greek. It doesn't actually say the word keeping in, in English or in the Greek. So how do you fill that in? If... if circumcision and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping the commandments of God then must be the opposite, which is everything. I've heard it somewhere out there. It's everything. That's the contrast, that it's everything. Paul doesn't have to say that because it's clearly implied. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But everything is keeping the commandments of God. In other words, obedience. Obedience matters. How do you think the modern church likes the message of obedience? Is that like one of its favorite topics? That's how you get on TV, right? Get up there and start preaching about obedience. That's what the world wants to hear. That's how you uh, make a mega church, I, I recall. Uh, it's, it's just the opposite, actually. Avoid obedience. Avoid obedience at all costs. Preach feel-good, fluffy sentiments that might make you smile. And yet, here's what Paul says. The ethical imperatives that reflect God's will, which we call His commandments, we're supposed to obey, and that's a real important thing. That's not a secondary issue. So in a sense, you know, we don't do the works of the law, according to Paul, uh, not, to, not to make us righteous and just before God, but we do fulfill the law by love, and it is in that fulfillment by love in which we are obeying the commandments of God, in that we're doing the commands of God by loving God and loving neighbor that we're keeping the commandments of God, we are obeying. You know, it's funny, you really have two different kinds of people when it comes to the law of God, when it comes to obedience. You'll have those that will excuse themselves for disobedience at the drop of a hat. 
And they have all kinds of really good reasons for it, why they don't have to obey this command or that command. And I tell you, every single time that happens, every single time that someone makes an, ex an excuse for disobedience, that the, that the, the ground of it, the base level of it, is a rejection of the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Every single time. When you excuse disobedience, you deny the Scriptures. And then you have on the, other, on the other side, you have people that beat themselves relentlessly with every violation of every command, forgetting that Jesus actually died for our disobedience. Where's the middle ground? It's remembering Christ and Him crucified. So just to be clear, Paul's, Paul's making his point here. Here's what matters. Here's what matters single people. Here's what matters husbands. Here's what matters wives. Here's what matters retired people. Here's what matters employees and employers. Here's what matters not the actual station that you were called in, but what ultimately matters is that you are called. You're keeping the commandments of God. It's how you live in the presence of God. Can you be content in that station? Can you stay in that lane and honor God? Not by doing something radical that in your mind amounts to some spiritual significance, but simply will you glorify God by obeying where you are? Think about it. You know, if God saved you where you are, why do you need to change to some other social setting to, in order to be pleasing to God? You don't. And again, remember that mental asterisk I'm asking you to make. I'll get to it soon here. Verse 20, he, re he reiterates the rule. The guiding principle is stated again. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. There's actually a play on words here that doesn't come across super clear in the ESV. There's a play on words between the verb called or was called and then in the, in the, in the word conditioned in the ESV. The word condition in the ESV is actually the word calling in the Greek. So it would read like this, in other words, if we were to look at this in Greek. Each one should remain in the calling in which he was called. So you can see why the translators went with condition, probably, because that's a little confusing on the surface. But it's interesting, because what Paul does here is he takes the term calling, which with Paul almost always refers to the idea of what's called the effectual call. The effectual call is that sovereign accompaniment of the Spirit with the gospel message that regenerates a person and it makes them alive. It's, a, it's in contrast to what we call the general call. Uh, the general call is like when the gospel call goes out and it doesn't necessitate a change in a person. Like if you were to think of the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils, whatever you want to call it, it's like the seed that falls on the, on the path and it doesn't take root. That's like the general call. But the effectual call is that call in which God produces an effect. Hence, effectual call. It's the seed that lands on good soil. It's, it's the washing of regeneration that grants faith to an individual. That's what, Paul is typically, that's what Paul is almost always meaning when he talks about calling. But here, he now in a sense sort of substitutes the idea of calling for the station of life in which you work or exist. So you understand what he's trying to do. He's now bringing the idea of those who were called, saying that the station of life is, that they, is what they had was their calling. That's the play on words. So God is totally sovereign. If you think of it in the context of chapter 7, was your calling marriage when you were called? Well, stay in that marriage. Was your calling singleness? Well, stay in that singleness. And again, mental asterisks. Okay, we're, we'll get to that. 
Now what happens here is that Paul again ends up doing something that eventually becomes extremely formative for the church in the time of the Reformation. And he says this again, that is, in this calling, one must remain. So, he, so the call to become believers came to us in the sphere of our calling. That is our state. That is our condition, our station. This means that, that one calling, the salvation calling, sanctifies the other calling. And because of that, Paul says, don't seek to change it. What do you need to do? What you need to do in that calling, in that condition, in that station, is glorify God there. God has a purpose for you being there. Live quorum Deo. Live in the presence of God. You understand how this is working, right? So here you have no, no doubt people that thought, well, because I'm this new creation in Christ, I'm now this spiritual person, and because now that I've got the Spirit, I can't remain doing this or that. And Paul says, this is nonsense. You've got this all wrong. You've, because you've been called, guess what? That sphere in which you have been called is now the calling in which you were called. And now he illustrates it a second time. This is his second illustration, and he makes the point from slavery. Verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Bondservant in, in the Greek is the word doulos. It means slave. That's, that's what it is. The translators in the ESV want to soften that a little bit, so they put bondservant, but it means slave, like how you would think of a slave. Well, what's the first thing you notice about um, this verse if you compare it to verse 18? Look at verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Verse 21, were you a slave when called? I'll say that again. I'll try to emphasize the difference, right? Verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Verse 21, were you a slave when called? the first thing you notice about that. It's the, the, the person changes, right? Tense changes of that. It's a question that leads to better Bible reading. Verse 18 is third person. Was anyone called? And in verse 21, it switches to the second person, which is, were you called? So it goes from an impersonal to anyone to now to where were you called? So that's the first thing. We notice there's a switch from the third person to the second person. Notice also there's no colorary. Uh, Corollary, right? So understand, um, you were called while you were circumcised, well then don't become uncircumcised. Were you called while uncircumcised, then don't seek circumcision. Now here it goes. Were you called while a slave? But notice there's no comparison. There's no corollary. Were you called while you were free? Don't become a slave. Why would Paul leave that out? Well, because it wasn't necessary. It's not necessary to say that as a corollary because nobody was tempted to do that. Nobody was thinking, oh, praise the Lord, I'm a Christian, now I can become a slave. No. Nobody's thinking that. It wasn't necessary for him to say that. So there's no need for a corollary here. So the fact that there's no corollary, but more importantly also that it goes from the third to the second person, indicates that this probably actually was much more of a problem uh, for the church in Corinth. So he says, you were called as a slave, and then he says these freeing words, which may shock some. Don't be concerned about it. You were called as a slave. Don't be concerned about it. Don't let it bother you, in other words. So what would you think? It would be something like this, you know, if this was written today or without a mindset that the Apostle Paul had by faith, 
you're a slave, write to your congressman and overturn this wrong. Uh, you're a slave, protest. You were called while a slave, protest. You were called while being a slave, block the freeway with your buddies. You were called as a slave, run away. None of those is what Paul says. He sees something that seems counterintuitive to us. Were you called while I was a slave? Well, don't let it bother you. The idea behind this is don't be preoccupied with it. Were you called in a state of slavery? Don't be preoccupied with it. Once again, Gordon Fee here is excellent. He says, his point right along, therefore, has not simply been to say, stay where you are, but precisely as in this case, do not let your social condition be a concern to you. That's the point of all these things. His main point isn't to say to stay where you are, but he's saying don't let your social actions, don't let your social position be a concern to you. A person's calling in Christ eclipses such conditions and thereby also transforms them into situations where one may live out one's Christian calling, regardless of what it is. So in other words, where were slaves on the social ladder in the Greco-Roman world? Uh, were they high up on the social ladder? No, right? They were on the lowest rung of social ladder. Uh, slavery back then was just as evil, and in, in the Roman world especially, was just as evil and wicked as it was here in the United States, with chattel slavery. Uh, the, the, we don't have a lot of time to go into all the different types of slavery, like the slavery that the Jews practiced, which is much different than what we had here in America. But the slavery in the Roman world was, you know, not always a very good thing at all. It had a lot of negative consequences to it. There were some domestic slaves, actually, that did have somewhat of a high status, but still only the status within slavery. And by the way, you could even actually, in that time, you could sell yourself into slavery if you were in debt in the Roman world. And there were actually accounts of doctors and lawyers, or senators, of selling themselves into slavery, like into domestic servitude. But make no mistake about it, that whole social sphere of slavery, it is, it's not a position that pe people typically desired to be in, but it was widespread. It was estimated that one out of every three people in the Roman Empire at the time of Paul was a slave. A third of the people in Rome were slaves at the time of Paul writing this. And Paul says, did God come to you in amazing saving grace while you were a slave? Well, then don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Now, Paul does not stop there, okay? Notice there's this qualifying exception, and he says, but if you can, you gain your freedom, make use of that. If you're able to come free, make use of that. Make use of your freedom, right? The reason that, that slavery has been abolished in, in most of the you know, first world countries is because of Christianity. That's the reason why, because of the ethic that Christianity teaches. But Paul's not telling them to just simply abandon slavery here in this context in Rome. He tells them if they can become free, well then make use of that, make use of that opportunity and make use of your freedom. So Paul is a, a realist, right? He doesn't have these ironclad rules, so he has these guidelines, but he also has these exceptions. Everything isn't always as simple as a black and white issue when it comes to these situational circumstances that a believer might find themselves in. We can't be too rigid with the text, and we need to consider what the whole counsel of God says. And so I want to address that mental asterisk that I've been asking you to make, and we can address that, that footnote, as it were, now. Number one, if we were to sum up what Paul's been saying through this point, it's that God is sovereign and that we are to remain in that station or that social contract we were in when we received the call to God, when we were saved, in other words. But there are times when you would need to abandon that station, right? 
to, you have to do something that we, that we would consider to be more spiritual. There are times when you would, when you would, you would must need to abandon that station. I mean, if you were, think of the Corinthians. They had a huge problem with temple prostitutes. What if you were a temple prostitute and you became a Christian? Should you stay in that station? That's the, that's where, that's the calling in which you were called. Should you stay there? No. Right? You don't stay in that station. You would have to leave. Or what if your life was marked by any of the sins mentioned in chapter 6? Uh, remember what he says there, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You were, you were defined and you were caught in some sin, and now you've been changed. Well, you can't remain there. You can't continue to be a thief. You can't continue to sell drugs. You can't continue to sleep with your boyfriend. There, there are some stations and social situations that you were called in that you must change. It's not an ironclad rule that he's talking about here. Becoming a Christian doesn't sanctify sin. Sin is still sin and we must flee it. God, secondly, God may bring you to another station. He's sovereign. He's working all things according to the counsel of his, of his will, Ephesians 1.11. He's establishing our steps, Proverbs 16.9. His plans won't be thwarted, Job 42.2. And so if you're single, but yet you have a desire for marriage, well, pursue that, because it is perhaps the case that God is bringing you to a new station. Same thing goes for your job, as long as it's not sinful. Even here with the illustration of slavery, if you can gain your freedom, we'll then make use of it. But the point is this. He's not trying to give us a doctrine on slavery here. He's not trying to give us a, a full, robust understanding of of, of being a slave at this point. The point is this, in the grand scheme of things, what really matters in your life, no matter what station you find yourself in, what matters is that you are a Christian, that you belong to the Lord. You don't need to do something that's more spiritual when it comes to things that aren't sinful. Simply glorify God and live before the presence of God in whatever condition you are in. Now then, continuing back with our text, why can Paul say this about slavery, that they should remain in it or make use of their freedom if they can? Because it is pretty shocking. Like, I would never counsel anybody to remain a slave. If I talked to somebody today, that wouldn't be my counsel. Here's why Paul can say that, because he's making a theological point. Because of verses 22 and 23. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man in the Lord. A freed man. By the way, this is a specific word in the Greek, and what it means actually is a manumitted slave, a slave who had gained their freedom. At that point, slavery becomes what? Kind of metaphorical, right? You have a slave who comes, who is called in the Lord. They now have a freedom because they are now Christ's freedman. And just, I mean, think of the Apostle Paul himself, right? He literally has what we call prison epistles. He letters that he wrote in jail that he delivered to the churches while he was incarcerated. Paul had, had no or limited social freedom for many years of his life as a Christian. But for Paul, even in that condition, he was in fact free. And it was because he was Christ. Listen to what he says in Philippians. This is one of those prison epistles, mind you, if you turn to the right. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. It's chapter 4. Verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who's the him in verse 13? It's Christ, right? It's Jesus. 
He's Christ's freed man, you see. He's able to be content and glorify God in whatever station he finds himself in. Could you be content if you were a slave? If you've lost your earthly freedom? We have a hard time being content now with all of our earthly freedom, don't we? Uh, pastor Jeremiah Bur Burroughs, a Puritan pastor, wrote a little book, a fantastic little book, called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And it is that. It's a, it's a rare jewel. It's not easy to find, but it's valuable. And Paul is answering the question for us here. What does it take to be content despite circumstance, cir any circumstance you're in? It's knowing that you're Christ's freed man. That's what it takes. True freedom in Christ has nothing to do with your status in life. Understanding that rearranges everything in life for you. Understanding that you are Christ's freed man rearranges all other views in your life. And so, so this is why Paul says, if you were called while a slave, don't worry about it. If you can get your freedom, go ahead and do that. Use it. But remember that if you were called when you were a slave, you know what you now are? Well, you're Christ's freed man. And there actually is a corollary here. No corollary in the first, but there's a corollary here. Verse 22. Likewise, he who was free when, when called is a slave of Christ. That's wonderful, right? So what redemptive value is there in being slave or free? Same with circumcision and uncircumcision, right? None. There's no redemptive value in it. Because if you were called while enslaved, you are Christ's freedman. And if you were called while free, guess what? You're Christ's slave. It's really amazing, isn't it? And so whether we are free or slave in this world, we all become slaves of Christ when we're called in that. And we all become free at the same time when we're called. What Paul is doing here in this text is he's just undermining the social status of slave and free. So, you know, there were certain distinctions that were made in the ancient world, right? We do it now, of course. We just make different distinctions. But what was the most fundamental distinction for a Jewish person from the Jewish perspective? It's easy, right? You had Jews and you had Gentiles. You had Jews, then you had everybody else. Every, uh, everybody else was Gentiles. Now, the idea of the world being divided into two peoples, Jew and Gentile, was very much a Jewish perspective. And although Gentiles would certainly have shared that perspective, the Jews were such a minority that it really wasn't this big dividing category of men. And we can make theological implications about those two categories as well. But we're thinking about this from an unsaved man's point of view especially. And so in the Roman world, if you were Gentile, guess what the big dividing line was? Well, it was not ethnicity. By the way, in the Roman world, color didn't, of your skin didn't play much of a factor. It was a cosmopolitan world. Color meant nothing. Not that there wasn't racism back then, but that wasn't the dividing line. The dividing line in Rome was slave or free. That's the dividing line. From the Jews' perspective, the world was divided up between Gentile and Jew. From the Gentile perspective, the world is divided up between slave and free. And there is this famous rabbinic prayer that John Gill notes that some people think is reflected in Paul's teaching to the church in Galatia, in um, Galatians 3.28, where the rabbi stands up. And in the morning he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not a slave, not a, nor a Gentile, nor a woman. So Paul corrects that understanding in Galatians 3, right, where he says that there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female. Everybody's one in Christ. This rabbi was lost. But these dividing lines were everything in the ancient world. And we still actually have the same kind of things today. Paul's point is that none of those dividing lines that the world lives by makes any difference at all. Why? You were bought with a price. Whether you are bond or free, whether you are rich or poor, doesn't make any difference. 
You were bought with a price. And then Paul says this at the end of verse 23. You were bought with a price, so do not become slaves of men. And so Paul is absolutely destroying the social status of slave and free because neither one has any significance when a person becomes a child of God. That's the most important thing. Everything else is secondary. Do you know Christ? Are you in Christ? That's what matters. There isn't any redemptive value in any other station. And the things that we used to do to divide people, Paul says that none of that, none of that makes any difference. So then he says these words, because you've been bought with a price. Well, what's the price? It's the blood of Christ. It's the cross. You've been bought with a price, which is already said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You were purchased by Christ. And the cost was his death. It was his blood shed for you on your behalf. And because you've been freed with that price, don't become the slaves of men. Now, Paul has to be speaking metaphorically here because nobody's going to voluntarily become the slave of a man. What he's saying, I think the idea is, is because none of those distinctions really make any difference at all because you've been bought with a price, the purchase price of the blood of the Son of God. Therefore, do not dare put yourself in bondage under men who say that those kind of divisions still count. That's important for us today, isn't it? You know where I'm going here with this, I think. Don't live like the world, Christian. You have the mind of Christ if you truly belong to him. Don't become the slaves of men. Don't become enslaved to the thoughts and the precepts and the philosophies of men that say certain things count when the word of God tells us that none of that counts. The CRT movement, critical race theory, needs to camp out on this passage, doesn't it? You know, pitch a tent here and, and, and live and look at this word until they are able to say amen to it or just simply deny that they are outside of what it means to be a Christian. It's that important. In other words, don't let some so-called spiritual elites dictate to you what true spirituality is. You've been bought with a price. You have the Spirit. You don't need some second blessing. You don't need some of this or some of that. Whatever we tell you, Paul would say, don't become enslaved to men. In 1520, Martin Luther writes three books, and one of them is called The Freedom of the Christian. And the opening of the very first two lines of the opening of that book are very well known, and they're often repeated. You might have heard this before. But think about where did Luther get this idea from these lines? He says, a Christian, said Luther, is an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is an utterly dutiful man, servant of all, subject to all. Most likely from here, right? Our passage in, in 1 Corinthians 7, towards the end. It's a great paradox of the Christian freedom. You are at the same time free in Christ and slave to Christ. Verse 24 wraps it up with the rule reiterated. So I said uh, three times, he said the same thing. 1 Corinthians 7, 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. So 17, verse 20, and verse 24. And again, whatever station, that is the station you were called in. It's a station in which you, listen, whatever station you were called in, you can live for God in that station. And so this goes, of course, in the context of marriage. Were you called while married? Remain then married before God. Were you called while celibate? Remain, therefore, before God. And remember the mental asterisks again. We don't need to revisit it. But Paul is basically saying, listen, no matter what your station, whether you are married, whether you're single, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, whether you're a slave or whether you are free, all of it, 
all of it is supposed to be lived before the face of God. You see, for the Christian, we don't have these unnatural divides in our life. We don't have this holy area over here and then some secular area over here. The Christian doesn't divide their life up like that. We live our whole lives, all of life is sacred, and we live our life before the face of God. All of our life, life is sanctified before God. So what this means is that there's not two different categories of Christians. Status is irrelevant because calling in Christ changes everything. Status is sanctified by divine calling, and all of life now is quorum deo. It is lived before the presence of God. So whether you sell houses or, or whether you work on houses, whether you chase kids around all day or you preach sermons, all of life and every station of life is sanctified before God. Let's make this as abundantly clear as I possibly can. Uh, when you change your son's diaper, or when you change your daughter's diaper, or you change your grandson or your grandson's diaper, praise the Lord, that act done in faith in the face of God is just as sacred as preaching a sermon. That act is just as pleasing to the Lord. It's just as much of a calling as going to Haiti or some other places. I've been a Christian long enough now to see um, books come and go, to see some books become super popular and then end up doing damage, maybe sometimes subvertedly without people knowing, and then fading away. One of those such books was a book called Radical by David Platt. And his book, the premise in that book was, you know, you need to do something radical for God. Sell all your stuff. Go serve the Lord. Go become a missionary. That's what you need to do if you're going to honor God. That's exactly the opposite advice of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a missionary, of course. God does raise them up often. He calls people to that station. But we have to get over this idea that somehow there are really two different kinds of Christians. It's just not true. Whatever station you were called in, you were called in it. You're, you're able to sanctify God in that station. You don't have to go overseas and serve some people to gain status as a Christian. Whether you're a blue collar, whether you're a white collar, whether you're a missionary, whether you're a student, whether you're a mother, whether you're a garbage collector, whether you're a politician, the fact is that all of life is a calling before the living God and all of it is sacred. All of it is holy. Keep the commandments. Right? Just living an ordinary life before the presence of God is holy. Just living an ordinary life, serving God where you are, that, in fact, is radical. We need more of it, church. Why is our society stuck? Why does it seem like our society is going in an anti-Christian direction? Could it be that part of it is because our culture thinks that in order to be a Christian, you have to do this big, amazing thing? It's not true. What you need to do is to be a Christian. Just simply be faithful where you are where you were called, God has sanctified that station in your life. And what this should do is it should lead us all to a sense of contentment until God changes our station. That station is our calling, and that calling we should be content. So what's the most important thing about you? It's not what you do. You ever notice how when that question gets posed, when you try to introduce yourself to someone and you ask them, like, or they ask, like, who are you? It kind of, you kind of almost without thinking about it, just go to what you do. Our identity is, so, is caught up in what we do, and it is important in what we do. But God is far, far, far more concerned with who we are than what we do. And to be a child of God, friends, is the highest privilege of all. That's what Paul is saying here. 
Whatever condition you've been called in, remain with God. Live for Him. He's called you. What a blessing. You don't need to change your station for God to call you. So honor God where you're at. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and how challenging it is. Knowing that some of the things that were in store for us in this passage are hard to take in. Thinking about slavery and uh, the, the pain that is brought upon people often in that. But we see from your word something greater than any station in this life, whether we might call it good or bad, and that is simply to be called by you. And so we thank you for calling us to yourself, for causing us to be enlivened in our hearts, to making us who were dead in our sins alive in Christ, us who were by nature children of wrath and worthy of all condemnation, being now adopted into your family and counted as your sons and daughters. We praise you for the wonderful redemption that you have applied to us, that Christ you have mediated for us. And we ask that you would help us to live before your face every day, God that we would live in your presence, seeking to be obedient to the commandments wherever we are in life. Should our lives have in store for it a change of station, God, then let your will be done. And help us to be sensitive to uh, your calling in our life when it comes to that sort of thing. But where we are now, where we are today, where we will go tomorrow, God, help us to live in such a way that glorifies your holy name. For you are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.